Hi, and welcome to Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Felt. A cancer diagnosis is one of the hardest slap in the face imaginable. All of a sudden, you have to become an expert in cancer and its treatments because your life depends on it. Oncologists, family and friends are pushing you towards chemo, radiation, surgery, yet you feel there are additional solutions out there. You don't feel confident in that only traditional therapies will take care of it. You may, as I have, seen family or friends quickly go downhill from harsh medical treatments. There is a better way. I invite you to listen to stories from real people fighting cancer successfully through powerful, integrative, and holistic methods. Learn what they did. This is my gift to you to make the learning curve less steep after your diagnosis. The information in this podcast could save your life as it has others. Well, today we have an absolute treat. We have Dr. Paul Merrick here today, and, and he's uh, really been engaged in, in a lot of the research in regards to cancer, uh, the metabolic aspect of cancer, and then also in regards to uh, repurposed drugs and how they impact the body and, and how it uh, really supports an individual as they are uh, going through cancer care. But but first, Dr. Merrick, I, I would love for you to just kind of introduce yourself and and so people really know the breadth of your knowledge and the all the amazing things that you've done. Well, thank you. Thank me for having you on the show. Uh, it's just an honor to be here. So I, I'm South African. I did my training in South Africa in internal medicine. Uh, I then did a fellowship in critical care medicine in London, Ontario, uh, and then I came to the U.S. Uh, practicing critical care for all 30 years. And then, so, you know, I did, I'm basically a clinical researcher. I'm really interested in bedside medicine, bedside teaching, and a lot of clinical research. And so that kept me busy for a long time. And then COVID came around and that changed everyone's world. It certainly changed my world. So, you know, how I got involved with this, it was March of 220. And if you remember that time, the um, NIH and CDC and WHO basically said there was no treatment for COVID. You went to a hospital, treatment was supportive, which seemed somewhat bizarre because we knew if you were in the ICU, you're, and particularly on a ventilator, your mortality approached 60 to 80%. And there's no disease that you're not going to try and treat. It was an absurdity. So what, what I did and got together a collection of colleagues is we put together a protocol for the hospitalized management of the hospitalized patient with COVID. And one of the drugs we, we suggested right back in March of 220 was corticosteroids. And uh, we were quite severely chastised for doing such a thing for using corticosteroids, which seems such an obvious thing to do because these patients had overwhelming inflammation. So basically we combined corticosteroids with heparin because we knew about the clotting and we added vitamin C and thiamine. And so that was our meth plus protocol. And, you know, <clears throat> obviously it was effective, but it wasn't until, you know, the solidarity study um, in June or July that actually proved the benefit of corticosteroids, which then became standard of care. And obviously heparin was accepted, you know, proven in randomized study and became the standard of care. And data are showing the benefit of vitamin C. 
So, in fact, our protocol that we developed just based on common sense and basic principles actually has been proven to be scientifically correct, which, you know, it wasn't luck. It was just understanding the disease. And then, obviously, we realized that the best way to control the pandemic was early treatment, that you really wanted to treat patients early. So we developed a number, we developed some protocols for the treatment of early COVID. And people would be surprised to know that there are at least 20 or 25, you know, pharmaceuticals or nutraceuticals that have been proven conclusively to be of benefit in early COVID. Um, you know, obviously the most um, notorious is ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, but apart from those two, many other Many other substances have improved. So that, you know, that was our uh, early treatment protocol. And then obviously long COVID came around and the vaccine injured came around. So we developed protocols for, 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 those, for those conditions. And so I think, you know, COVID shone a big bright light onto the um, failure of the medical system, um, the corruption, the deceit, the dishonesty. And the, the really the war, the war on repurposed drugs and cheap and effective therapies. So I developed an interest in, you know, the use of repurposed drugs and the use of simple treatments to cure common medical diseases. Because, you know, the standard pharmaceutical medical school, medical institution approach is to treat these people with drugs that basically treat the symptoms that don't treat the cause and keep them taking medications forever. So, you know, we developed a protocol, or I developed a protocol for type 2 diabetes because it is a curable disease. And so I, I know that personally because I used to be a type 2 diabetic and I changed my diet and I changed my lifestyle and I'm no longer a type 2 diabetic. So it's, it's you know, it's really important. And then I became interested in cancer because... I think it's a really important disease. It's go, it is going to become the, the commonest, the most common cause of death. And I think the current narrative is much like COVID. It's based on, you know, false premise and false therapy. And there are very effective alternatives that are scientifically based that can make an enormous impact in the treatment of patients with cancer. And so that's my most recent um, project, so to speak. So what, what kind of, when you're talking about false premise, uh, you know, the, the road that has been traveled mostly you know, with research is uh, you, you find genetic mutations and believing that this is a reason why uh, a cell become cancerous is because of these uh, genetic mutations, and that can be due to a number of different reasons that put stress on the DNA. So, uh, th is is that the premise that you are are concerned about, or? Oh yeah, no, I, you know, cancer is complicated, and so uh, you know, I do not think that it is primarily a genetic or a chromosomal disease. I think it is, you know, I, I, I follow or, or I become really interested in Thomas Siegfried's work, Otto Warburg's work, that cancer is really a metabolic disease. And so that many of the changes in genetics and in the chromosomes are secondary to the metabolic changes. 
I think there's an interplay with your genes and metabolism. I think the gene theory is false. And so there have been many studies that have basically proven that the genetic theory of the mutation theory just doesn't hold scientific ground. You know, firstly, there are many patients who have cancers that do not have mutations. Secondly, there's no characteristic mutation of any particular cancer. Um, so there's no particular mutational fingerprint which characterizes any cancer. Some cancers have many mutations and these evolve with time. So I think that, that genes play a role. I think genes may predispose to cancer. I mean, we know this with the BRCA mutation, patients with familial polyposis, they have a genetic predisposition. But what's interesting is if you look at the, the, the risk of cancer with BRCA1 today versus 40 years ago. So 40 years ago, the risk of a woman getting cancer with the BRCA1 was about 30%. Now it's 70%. So there must be some other environmental factor that it's not just the genes. The other thing which is fascinating is chimpanzees are closest, they're the closest species to mammals, to us humans. Uh, we have 98% gene homology between humans and chimpanzees. Chimpanzees rarely get cancer. And chimpanzees, even though they have the BRCA gene, never get breast cancer. So there is something about our lifestyle that is causing cancer. And it's just, you can't describe it only to the genes. And so one of the things that's been looked at quite a bit is, is not only the, the cell in itself, the, the, the healthy cell or the cancer cell, but also the environment, the microenvironment that it's in. So what, what kind of role does that play in regards to uh, the expression of that cell and what direction that goes? Yeah, so, you know, these, these were concepts that I had no idea about. You know, I just thought you had cancer and cancer cells. And then I discovered there's something called the tumor microenvironment. So the tumor grows in a community. So this is a community which basically allows the tumor cells to prosper and grow. So the, the, the tumor microenvironment is infiltrated by things like myeloid, myeloid suppressor cells, by tumor-associated macrophages. So uh, by platelets. Uh, and so there are a whole bunch of cells that infiltrate the tumor microenvironment, which allow the tumor to grow. And then there, these, these cells, also including the Tregs, the T regulatory cells. So they're a collection of myeloid cells which work in synergy with the tumor to promote the tumor. And then against that, you have the uh, natural killer cells and cytotoxic cells, which are one's host immune cell, trying to get rid of the cancer. So you have this environment where this tumor microenvironment, which try, which flourishes to promote the growth of the tumor, while the cells of you in the, of your adaptive system, the you know the natural killer cells and the cytotoxic cells, are trying to destroy the cancer cells. So it is this this balance. And then the other thing which is really important 
is the cancer stem cell. And so this is such an important concept that, you know, maybe it's become more common amongst, you know, the oncology community, but I had not heard of cancer stem cells. And the cancer stem cell is really the cell which gives rise to the cancer. And what's important about the stem cell is it's a slow growing cell. So that chemotherapy and radiotherapy actually doesn't, enhances the growth of the stem cell rather than kills the stem cell. So it only makes sense that if you have a cancer and you treating it with whatever means, you need to go for the stem cell. You need to go for the tumor micro environment to make the environment hostile to the tumor. And you also have to kill the stem cell. Otherwise, all you're doing is you, you it's like pruning a tree. You, 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 you cutting off the branches at the top but you're allowing the tree underneath and the roots to flourish. So to treat the cancer, you really have to get to the stem cells. You have to get to the tumor microenvironment. And conventional you know, chemo and radiation therapy just does not do that, get, get that job done. So why you're mentioning that the cancer stem cells are, are slow growing, and then also you mentioned that uh, chemo does not impact cancer stem cells. So, wh why 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 doesn't it? I mean, why why doesn't it kill cancer stem cells? Yeah. So most most chemotherapy drugs act on rapidly dividing cells. Um, that that's how they work. And surprisingly, you know, tumors made up of a of a whole heterogeneous collection of tumor cells. And only at one time, approximately 10% of actually tumor cells are actively dividing. And so the chemotherapy, you know, acts by, you know, interfering with dividing cells. So it, it, it kills the rapidly dividing cells. It also kills the, the rapidly dividing cells throughout the rest of the body, the bone marrow, you know, the lining of your mouth, the lining of your GI tract, other fast-growing cells. But it leaves the stem cells which are slow growing intact. And so that's one of the problems with chemotherapy. And uh, you, you mentioned, you also used the word heterogeneous. So uh, frequently we learn about the, uh, the tumor and, and the type of cancer, obviously with a biopsy, and then we can learn kind of the, the genetic makeup. And, and you made the point that genetic makeup may not be the strategy or going after that may not be the strategy in order to be able to effectively uh, treat the cancer. So if it's heterogeneous, does that mean that if you do a biopsy in one location, can the expression or the, the type of uh, cancer cells be different in another location than where you did the biopsy? Yeah, absolutely. I think the genetic mutations may differ the morphology may differ, the microenvironment may differ. So it's not like you have a homogeneous population of cancer cells in a homogeneous microenvironment. It's, it's a very heterogeneous uh, uh, you know, environment, which I think is important, as you say, in terms of how to treat the cancer. And so what kind of control does an individual have? Because it sounds like the tumor microenvironment is, is really important to address uh, when you're dealing with cancer, because it's, it seems like there 
the cancer cells are really affected by the signaling from the tumor microenvironment. So what, what can an individual do? do? Does an individual have control over the tumor microenvironment in some fashion? So that's a really good question. And the answer is yes. So almost all of the repurposed drugs that we recommend do three things. They promote cell death of the tumor cell apoptosis. That's number one. Number two, they actually have an effect on the tumor microenvironment. They increase the activity of the natural killer cells and they potently inhibit the activity of the T regulatory cells, the uh, tumor-associated macrophages. So they favorably alter the tumor microenvironment. And a lot of this is the anti-inflammatory effects. So it's the inflammation which drives many of these, uh, these cells in this environment. So the, um, the repurposed drugs, they, they go for the cancer cell, they improve the microenvironment. The other thing that they do is they go for the cancer stem cell. So almost all of the repurposed drugs we recommend actually inhibit the growth or kill the cancer stem cells. And I suppose the fourth thing they do is they alter in a positive way the risk of angiogenesis. So angiogenesis is the development of new blood vessels and the new blood vessels aid in the formation of distant spread. So if you can inhibit angiogenesis, you can decrease the likelihood of metastatic spread. And so the remarkable thing is almost all of the repurposed drugs that we use. So most cancer chemotherapy drugs act on one specific pathway in one specific mechanism. But what's intriguing, and it's truly an astonishing fact, is that most, almost all of the repurposed drugs are pleiotrophic in the way they act. They act on multiple different pathways simultaneously. It's, it's truly an astonishing phenomenon. So um, you can look at mabendazole. So mabendazole is, you know, it has received, you know, quite a lot of attention because of, uh, you know, there, there was a, a famous case of a gentleman with uh, non-small cell lung cancer who took fembendazole and, and was cured. And he, he's promoting the use of these drugs. So we know that mabendazole inhibits the division of the cell. It prevents cell division. But what we also know is that it actually interferes with glucose metabolism. It interferes with glutamine metabolism. It inhibits the cancer stem cell. And it's anti-inflammatory, so it has effects on the tumor microenvironment. So a single, and a single drug has these multiple pleiotrophic effects, which is what makes it them so effective. And then, so, when you, and then when you combine them with other drugs which act similarly, it becomes one plus one equals three or one plus one equals four. So these drugs act additively on you know, all four aspects, five aspects of the tumor to, to inhibit tumor growth. So, so you mentioned the word repurposed drugs and also you mentioned membendazole. Do you, do you mind just kind of explaining what repurposed drugs are? Sure. It's really an important concept of what an off-label drug or a repurposed drug, because it's repurposed drugs or off-label have got a bad name. 
So the, the way it works in, in, in the United States is that, you know, a pharmaceutical company develops a drug, you know, whatever that drug is, and they develop it for a specific indication. Say, say it's a cardiac drug for an arrhythmia. And so the drug gets licensed by the FDA. In order for a drug to be licensed, it has to be safe and it has to be effective for a specific indication. So for example, you, you approve amiodarone, which is a cardiac drug for the treatment of ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. And so it gets approved by the FDA. And by the rules and regulation, the drug companies can only market or advertise that drug for that indication. But it so happens that most drugs have a benefit just beyond what it's licensed or registered for. So for example, amiodarone is a very good effective drug for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. And it's actually the standard of care for the treatment of atrial fibrillation, but it's being used off label. So it's being used for an indication for which it's not approved, yet it's highly effective. In order for the company then to get it relabeled, they have to do they have to do a whole host of additional studies which are which are really expensive. So it's really not in their interests to do these additional studies just to extend the license when it's already been used for that purpose. And so the, the bottom line is between 30 to 40 percent of drugs prescribed in hospital are prescribed off label. And it may be as high as 60% in pediatric cases. So, for example, if you use amoxicillin to treat otitis, which is middle ear infection, it's not, it's not, it does not have an FDA approval for that indication. So, although it's basically regarded as standard of care, which it really is, it's being used off label. And so, so there's nothing wrong with using a drug off label. It happens every day. The, the FDA, in fact, endorses and promotes the use of FDA off label drugs. They say, you know, it's perfectly fine for doctors to use drugs off label at their own discretion. But then COVID came around and <laughs> it seemed like the rules and regulations suddenly changed to suit this particular narrative. But that's what off-label is. You know, it's people think of it as some kind of, you know, a dirty term and uh, a secondhand drug, but that's not true. You know, it's just using a FDA-approved drug for an indication for which it's not officially approved. And you, you mentioned then, yeah, the pharmaceutical company would have to go back, yeah, do extensive testing, spend a lot of money, uh, in order to be able to prove then for these other usages. And uh, the challenge then is obviously that this drug is uh, may have been around for a while. So now the pharmaceutical company, you know, so then you have generic versions out there uh, that anyone can prescribe. And so any company that is then doing the, the studies will not be able to reap the financial benefit of those studies. So it doesn't make any financial sense for them to, to go forward with that. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. So it is a balance because once the, the patent of the drug has expired, there's no incentive for the company to do any further tests because 
You know, it could be made generically by, you know, generic companies. So they lose interest. If there's, if you can't get a patent on something, you can't make money. Somehow Big Pharma loses interest in the drug. Yeah, fascinating how that is. Um, and so when, when somebody then says, well, uh, this is not FDA approved, then recognize then that it is the same scenario with a, a number of different pharmaceuticals drugs that you mentioned is being used on a daily basis in hospitals as part of standard of care, even though it's not FDA approved for that usage. Yeah, so the bottom line is it is FDA approved. So it's an FDA approved drug, but it's not being used for the specific indication. So that's important. It's not, <coughs> sorry, like we're using some experimental or unproven drug. This is a drug which is FDA approved, but it's approved for a different indication. And 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 it has a a long term safety record uh, because it has been obviously been on the market for a long period of time. So it is thoroughly understood what the adverse reactions can be, and then also the limitations of the pharmaceutical you know drug in itself. Oh, absolutely! You make such a good important point because people are so obsessed using the the most recent you know, design a molecule that's just been released by Big Pharma. The problem is it has such a short track record of safety. And so then it's very difficult to know how safe that is. So, for example, you can look at metformin. So metformin is one of the drugs that are very effective for the treatment of cancer. And again, it works via multiple different pathways. Metformin has been around for 50 or 60 years. So, you know, it has an enormously long track record in terms of its safety. We understand the drug, we understand the pharmacology, we understand how to dose it, and it is remarkably safe. So why would you not want to use a drug which has an enormously long safety record as opposed to a new designer drug for which, you know, it's unknown its, its, its safety record? So in, in your studies, then, uh what kind of repurposed drugs would you say would be kind of on the top of the line uh, to consider when, when an individual has been diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, so what we did is, you know, we put together a monograph and we stratified the um, repurposed drugs as, as best we could based on available science. So there are approximately 300 different repurposed drugs and probably 200 nutraceuticals or botanicals, which have some activity against cancer. Now, obviously, if any single patient, you know, is unable to digest all of that information and certainly can't take is that many supplements. So what we try to do was to stratify the repurposed drugs and nutraceuticals according to the level of evidence. So, you know, a, 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 a certain a compound may have anti-cancer activity in a test tube. You know, it may kill cancer cells in a mouse model. It may be shown to kill cancer cells together with chemotherapeutic drugs. And so those are already important as a big starting point. But what you really want to know is what does the drug or nutraceutical do in a human being? Is it safe, firstly? And then secondly, is it effective? 
So, you know, you can't base the use of any of these nutraceuticals or repurposed drugs just on uh, experimental data. We do need to have clinical data. So people say, well, you know what? Nobody's going to test these drugs because no one's making money and you can't do studies. Well, that's not exactly true because, you know, there are people who, who are interested in the truth, who, who have academic curiosity. And so these aren't massive randomized controlled trials, but these are good studies. So many, many, many of the drugs we speak about have been tested in clinical trials, longitudinal, and even, you know, at, at worst, you know, what is a case series? You know, if, if a drug is effective or a nutraceutical is effective, then, you know, clinicians can put together a case series which describes the, the patients. So, you know, it's really important that we look for clinical data because, you know, otherwise there, there are drugs that have been shown in a test tube to be effective. However, when you test them in humans, it's a disaster. You know, not only is it harmful, but it actually is really harmful. So we do need clinical data. And surprisingly, for some of the drugs that we, we've put on our list, there is, there is a, a remarkable amount of data. And so probably the most important is, is a substance you may not have heard of it before. It's probably, it's not known to many people. It's called vitamin D. Shocker. Shocker. <laughs> Shocker. So vitamin D is truly, it's not a vitamin. It's actually a hormone. And it's potent in pre preventing cancer. And it is potent in treating cancer. So it's really well established that you're deficient in vitamin D. And we know this because your risk of cancer increases uh, as you go further and further from the equator, you get less ultraviolet B and less vitamin D. So it's, it's, it's not even debatable. Vi vitamin D deficiency significantly reduce, increases your risk of cancer. And if you give people vitamin D, you reduce their risk of cancer. Isn't that interesting? And then it's shocking, I'm sure. And then for people who have cancer, you know, it, it acts on the immune system. It acts on the tumor microenvironment. It acts on the tumor itself. So again, vitamin D is a potent drug for the treatment of cancer. And there are multiple studies, really good, well-conducted, randomized, controlled studies. So it, it should, you know, it should be part of the standard of care. You know, we talk about integrative medicine where you're combining the best of, you know, conventional allopathic medicine plus the best of complementary medicine, which you should be able to integrate. So there's no question of doubt that every patient who has cancer should give, be getting vitamin D. The other is melatonin. You know, there's really good data that melatonin deficiency causes cancer. And so it was discovered in night shift workers, particularly in women uh, who worked in the airline industry, they had low levels of melatonin and it increased the risk of cancer. It's, you know, night shift work is now considered a potential carcinogen. So you see, there's another one and there's really, really good data on the use of melatonin. And then when we come to, you, you know, nutraceuticals or herbs, there's curcumin. 
So the data on curcumin is truly overwhelming in terms of its mechanistic data. Um, it acts via multiple different pathways, again, on the tumor microenvironment, on the cancer, on angiogenesis, on the stem cell. And there is a sufficient um, amount of clinical data to support its use. And obviously, it's a widely used herb whose safety is well known. So, you know, that, that's another one. The other one we like is green tea. So green tea extract has enormous um, number of pathways through which it benefits the patient with cancer. Again, it, it causes cancer cell apoptosis. It acts on the microenvironment. It acts on the stem cell. It's really important for glucose and glutamine metabolism. So, you know, green tea is, is another one. So th there is a fairly good list of compounds that are really very effective for the treatment of cancer. And so what we say is if people are undergoing, you know, conventional chemotherapy, that's fine. But at the same time, they should take these additives to supplement. It's really complementary medicine. You know, it's integrative. You're using the best of both worlds. And then obviously, if patients have a cancer that's not chemotherapy responsive, you know, to so to try and kill the kill the, the the tumor, what usually happens is that kill, they kill the patient. So there are certain tumors, such as you know um, pancreatic tumors, that really respond neurotumors that really respond poorly to chemotherapy, and so in those in those situations, one should be, you know, more more inclined to use repurposed drugs. And metabolic therapy, we're really, you know, considering limiting the use of these toxic medications, which really don't provide any quality of life. Yeah. So the the challenge becomes, I mean, when when a patient goes to an oncologist, and the oncologist only has certain tools that that they can offer, so they will then offer. Uh, therapies that may not be in the best interest of, of the patient just because you know, the oncologist really does not have other tools. So the, the patient then need to recognize that in addition to kind of listening to the oncologist that the, the there are other options out there that can then be more effective and that they don't only have to rely on the limited amount of tools that the oncologist has uh, you know, at their disposal. Yeah, I mean, what you say is absolutely true and a fundamental question. You know, obviously, if you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And if you have limited tools in your tool chest, you gotta, you know, you gotta offer the patient what you have and what may not be in the patient's best interest. And so it is, it becomes awkward, but I think the patient should have a conversation with their oncologist. They should, you know, inquire about, because the bottom line is we know over 50% of patients with cancer use complementary and alternative medicine. It's just the way it is. And so oncologists must recognize this, that the patients whose interests they have at heart are frustrated with the treatment they're receiving. So really, they should engage in a conversation. And if the oncologist is not comfortable or familiar with 
some of these therapies, well, they should say, okay, why don't you go see an integrative physician and we can work together? You know, it should be working together to achieve the best outcome for the patient. It shouldn't be a competition. It should not be competitive or antagonistic. You know, it should be um, working together for the patient's best interest. And so the patients need to be informed and enlightened. And that's, that's I think, the bottom line, because otherwise they're going to be passive passengers in this journey and are just going to do what the oncologist tells them to do. And so that's really the main purpose of our monograph, you know, our cancer care monograph, where is for patients to read it, realize there are other choices and alternatives, and that they can empower themselves to take charge. I think the days of when patients are just passive, you know, recipients of therapy is, is over. You know, patients have to participate in the care. They have to pay and play an active role. And so especially when it comes to diet. So most oncologists tragically think diet makes no difference. Tell the patients, eat whatever you want, eat candy, eat chocolates, eat milkshakes, whatever. And so that's a tragedy because we know without question of doubt that diet and dietary manipulation and the limiting of um, glucose makes such an important difference. So um, patients have to be involved. You know, they can't just be passive conduits anymore. They have to take an active role in their disease. And that's the only way they will succeed. And, and then also then in regards to the chemo, then having uh, the, the discussion so they can really understand the type of cancer and the track record of the chemo in regards to their type of cancer, whether uh, the oncologist is looking for a curative, meaning that that chemo has been proven to, uh, to really cure this cancer, or if we're looking for palliative, you know, where you're just trying to control the cancer with the chemo, or there's really no evidence that chemo is beneficial in any way, and now you're just adding chemo and then uh, putting more stress, you're adding toxins, you're suppressing immune system, and you're decreasing the abilities uh, or the individual's vitality to, to fight the cancer on their own. Absolutely. I think it's, it's critical that oncologists give patients true information, you know, and accurate information that they need to know, is, is the cancer I have curative? Is, is chemotherapy curative? If not, does chemotherapy improve my quality of life? Does it prolong life? Or is it just merely some form of palliation? So the oncologist has to really be honest in terms of the prognosis and what the chemotherapy can achieve. And so patients can then participate in the decision-making if they're given that information. I mean, there's no question of doubt that certain tumors are highly chemo-responsive. You know, gonadal tumors, choriocarcinoma, testicular tumors, certain lymphomas are highly chemo-responsive. And so in those patients, it makes sense to follow an aggressive chemo protocol. However, if you have metastatic colon cancer, metastatic pancreatic cancer, metastatic kidney cancer, it's completely chemo resistant. So trying to trying to 
you know, blast those patients with chemo just doesn't make any sense. And I think oncologists have to be honest with their patient. And if they, you know, they have limited tools, they should say, well, you know what, let's work with an, an integrative oncologist or an integrative uh, internist. And even though you're uh, choosing then a chemo where the, the cancer is, is uh, chemo responsive, uh, many of those individuals, once that cancer is, is, is cured, uh, are then put at risk for other types of cancer later on in their life. And so then, you know, these type of other therapies like the repurposed drugs and nutraceuticals become important then to protect the person from future type of events. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely spot on. So it's paradoxical that many of the cancer drugs that are used actually cause cancer. They are, they, they are carcinogenic. So they're treating a cancer with a carcinogenic compound. So people who've received chemotherapy are at an enormously high risk of developing cancers again. So they should aggressively participate in, in simple protocols that they can undertake to reduce their risk of getting a second cancer. And so while there's no absolute in medicine, there are certain things that they can proactively do to reduce their risk. And so you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned membendazole, metformin, uh, what are some of the other, and, and also some nutraceuticals like curcumin, vitamin D, obviously vitamin C, uh, uh, what are some of the other type of repurposed drugs that you feel, and, and obviously they, and, and the monograph, the link to the monograph, we're going to have that as part of, you know, this, uh, this interview so people can, can click on it and, and have access to it because it, it is quite phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, what so, yeah, there's a long list. Omega-3 fatty acids are really effective primarily because of the anti-inflammatory effects. The Chinese herb berberine, which is a very effective anti-diabetic medication, uh, it's also very effective for cancer, partly because it modulates glucose metabolism. Um, in Europe, many integrative oncologists use mistletoe. And so there's really very good data, you know, randomized controlled trials showing the benefit of mistletoe. Uh, I would imagine it's not that common amongst uh, American oncologists, but it's used quite, quite aggressively in, in European countries, particularly Germany and France. Believe it or not, uh, the statins are torvastatin. So statins are useless to prevent cardiac disease. So that's a complete and utter hoax. Um, the cholesterol, Cardiac statin is a hoax, but surprisingly, statins, the lipid-soluble statins, are very effective for the treatment of cancer. So that's, you know, that's another drug which one can use. Um, and then, surprisingly, the, uh, the drug which is, has a very long history of use, the anti-antibus, which disulfiram, which is used to treat, uh, you know, people that are alcohol-addicted, is highly effective against cancer. So there, there is a long list of repurposed drugs that appear to be highly effective in the treatment of cancer. And it, it's 
probably likely that they work together. So, you know, we don't recommend using a single drug or two drugs. It's at least a combination of four or five drugs together acting on different pathways, which likely will, you know, inhibit the tumor growth and improve symptoms and improve quality of life. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's a beauty. That, that's a beauty to be able to bring in these safe, available drugs uh, and then put pressure on cancer because cancer is a very metabolically active uh, tissue. And so, if if you put stress on how it's able to get nutrients and get energy, uh, it becomes very vulnerable. Yes. So I think diet diet is really important. You know, we talk about diet in diabetes and hypertension, but in cancer, diet is really important because cancer cells are highly glucose dependent. And so what you really want to do is starve the cancer cell by limiting the amount of glucose you give the cell so that, you know, uh, embarking on a low glycemic, um, high fat um, keto type diet, you know, has been proven. You know, there's really good data that it improves the outcome of patients with cancer. And so it does take some effort on the part of the patient um, to change their lifestyle. But you know what? It's not that difficult once you once you adapted to it. And obviously, it makes an enormous difference. And so, you know, patients can, can take matters in their own hand. And so certainly diet makes an enormous difference. And in conclusion, do you mind talking a little bit about the difference uh, between fenbendazole and menbendazole? And uh, is one better than the other, or is it certain uses for one versus the other? So that's a good question. They belong to the same class of drugs, and they work in exactly the same way. So we recommend mabendazole because mabendazole is FDA-approved for use in humans. It's an antiparasitic drug. So it is kind of interesting that antiparasitic drugs seem to be quite effective against cancer. And in a way, you can look at the cancer as a parasite. And so these antiparasitic drugs are really effective against cancer. Ivermectin is another one. But bendazole is not FDA approved for use in humans. That's the problem. It's, it's approved for use in veterinary medicine. So... You know, patients can take fembendazole, but it's not something that us as clinicians can recommend because it is it is a, it is veterinary grade and it is made for animals. But the fact that it's made for animals doesn't make it a second class drug because we know many drugs that are used in humans are used in animals: penicillin, amoxicillin, um, ivermectin. So. It's just that it hasn't been approved for use in humans, but it belongs to the same class of drugs and it's as equally effective. We just can't recommend it legally because it's not an FDA-approved drug for use in humans. Well, Dr. Merrick, this this has been wonderful and you're bringing forth such powerful and, and incredibly important information uh, we're going to have the link to your monograph, if, if that is okay with you, oh, course, associated. Yes. yes. So that way people have access to that. And uh, and this this is free information that you've, you've 
work hard at to to develop and uh, so thank you is any any other kind of resources that you that you feel is important for uh, the the listeners that that we should make available yes so they can go to our website at flccc.net flccc.net and can download the monograph and then there are some really interesting books that are available you know if they're really interested Thomas Seafried's book, you know, uh, Cancer is a Metabolic Disease, is a really, really good book. Uh, it's a little bit detailed and a bit complicated, but it's a good book. Travis Christofferson wrote a really good book on, you know, Tripping Over the Truth, which is a really good book. Um, it goes through the history of cancer and the history of chemotherapy. So it's, it's a really good book. Um, uh, Robert Lustig wrote a really good book on metabolic disease. Um, my, my friend, um, uh, and I have to get his name now, wrote a really good book. Um, so I, I think it's important that one select out authors that are have a credible history, you know, because there is a lot of misinformation out there. So you want to focus on authors that, that have a, a, a good track record. Um, so many of these books are, are listed uh, in, in our monograph. Right. Yeah, so the, the person I was thinking was Tim Noakes. So Tim Noakes wrote a really good book on, on the keto diet and, a, you know, the a, a healthy approach to eating. So th these are, good, you know, he's, a, he's an excellent scientist. So I think these are really important books that uh, are important to, for people to read. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Merrick, thank you so much for, for coming on to this podcast and, and sharing your information and, and for making it available to the public. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thanks for having me on your show. It's been thank an honor. The information this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or treat any disease. If you'd like to know more about what my center offers, please visit thecarlfeldcenter.com. Please join us next week for another live consultation with a patient diagnosed with cancer on Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Feldt.